Fan Drive Time, Sportsnet 590, The Fan, Ben Ennis, Blake Murphy. I, this, I always come up with good research ideas for you, Mr. Numbers. Sorry, Dr. Numbers. No, sorry, just Numbers, right? Because Mr. Numbers was your father. I don't have my PhD. No, okay. Um, I always think of them in the middle of the show where you have no time or yeah, ability to do it, and understandably. Ability. I mean, I pulled off those WBC I, stats yesterday. That was pretty good. No, you're really good at the Googling. I, th- I would love... Please, information synthesis. <laughs> I would love for you to do uh, a deep dive on former Toronto Maple Leafs in their first games back against the Leafs. Um, because we have one of those tonight in Pierre Engvall, who feels like a mortal lock to score. And he scored a bunch. And he has like seven points in the, or five points in the seven games that he's played. I mean, he's shooting at a ridiculously high rate of 20, 27%. So it's not unlikely to continue. But like, yeah, this feels like this is a pretty regular occurrence that the Maple Leafs trade somebody away or they lose them on waivers and then upon seeing the blue and white on the other side of the ice decide to fire all the pucks into the net yeah there's no not great yeah you is there any way you can do that on the fly no i i have no idea how i would uh go about doing that quickly other than to say anecdotally yeah of course of course jimmy vz is gonna score of course everyone else who's ever left is going to score. Like it's, it's not that I, I want to talk about betting or anything like that, but it's a lock that it, all the X Leafs are going to score all the time. Yeah. The only guy it didn't apply to apparently was Dennis Mulligan, who had, had been on like a little bit of a scoring streak for the avalanche when he mm-hmm. played the Toronto Maple Leafs. Yeah. The only thing that would top, I guess, Pierre Engvall coming back and scoring a goal is, or not coming back rather. Cause they're there. Um, him getting in a fight. Or like doing a tough guy thing, I think would would upset the Leafs fans infinitely more. It's true. Uh, We will see tonight as the Toronto Maple Leafs are in Long Island to play the uh, Islanders. Ryan Dixon is there, Sportsnet senior hockey writer. The land of uh, John Tavares' effigies, I imagine. Ryan, how many have you seen so far? No, no burning jerseys. It was pretty quiet when I walked up half an hour ago. Uh, I don't know if the animosity has faded after what? What is it now? Five years? Oh my god! Yeah. Um, but we'll see. I'll uh, I'll listen for the smoke detectors and know that if something pops off, it's uh, it's a pile of jerseys on fire. So, like, yeah, I I am a little bit. I mean, not that you would see burning jerseys or effigies, but like these are usually in the the five previous years and well not all of them have had fans and you know what they haven't played the islanders during regular seasons in a couple of those seasons so maybe i am going back a couple of years now but that there was like a it was like almost a a super bowl type atmosphere on long island for these games and and every game is kind of a must win for this team that's trying to get into the postseason after trading away its first round pick to get bo horvat i know it's it's protected uh essentially if they if they miss the playoffs but yeah this is a team that wants to make the playoffs is in a playoff spot so they're all very important but these games against John Tavares used to mean something are you telling me they don't mean anything anymore well there's also the arena shift right like there was just something about that ratty old Nassau Coliseum and it certainly had its charm but like it was rough around the edges Mm. you know like I I feel like it just was sort of a more natural place to uh for some unruly behavior now I'm in this absolutely pristine arena which it is my first time here it is beautiful i was just talking to someone about that i don't know it's just so much more civilized here you know it's uh it just doesn't stoke the same fire maybe 
Well, so yeah, but a part of that is probably the the time frame as well. Um, I I think Pierre Engvall's fires will be pretty stoked tonight. Um, he's obviously a player who was a, a little bit polarizing in Toronto. Did a lot of the stuff that the um, you know more advanced numbers liked. Did did well the drive play, um, but maybe never as maybe never exactly the player that. Leafs fans or the Leafs organization hoped he'd become from a uh, passion and physicality standpoint. Uh, he's off to a pretty good start with the Islanders. You, you expect him to do the very obvious and, and get one or two against his old team tonight? Put it on the board, right? I mean, <laughs> he's playing on the second line. I think yeah. he's got five points in his past four. Um, yeah, that it would <laughs> uh, it would only be natural, but I when I was listening to you guys uh, before I jumped on, you're right. I think if you wanted to, in theory, Leaf Nation, it would be if he ran someone over, right? It'd be yeah. like if he scored a Cam Neely goal <laughs> uh, and, and plowed someone over en route to the net because that was clearly the, uh, you know, the knock on him. Which, to be fair, you know, look, not everyone is going to be Cam Neely. Not every guy who is six foot five, um, you know, is going to have the scrappiness or, or you know, the, the attitude that, that fills that frame out and, you know, Good on Engvall for for turning himself into the player he has because it's not like this was a you know a super high draft pick or or someone whose career was always assured right we're talking about a seventh round guy who's turned himself into a pretty useful NHL player so good on you Pierre but um, you know he was he wasn't the the, the kind of guy who was gonna stoke the passions for Leaf fans but I can guarantee you Islander fans don't give a hoot as long as he keeps scoring because as you said they're you know, they're game to game here and, and their big acquisition, Horvat, has a scoring game. So they'll take the uh the surprise scoring from Engball. Yeah, unlikely that the twenty seven percent shooting percentage uh, keeps up, but uh good for him. Um I I I send him no ill will. So the the lines look uh, rather different for tonight. Uh, Austin Matthews, Callie Yarn Rock uh, still together. Alex Kerfoot on his wing is Mitch Marner uh slides alongside John Tavares and Michael Bunting. Sam Lafferty centering the third line and William Nylander on his wing. Like they're spreading out the, the, the core four guys along the three lines. Is this more experimenting? Like it's hard to know what is actually going to stick when the postseason starts, but does this feel like, Hey, what does this look like? Is this something we could actually see against Tampa in what? Three, four weeks time. Well, obviously you slot O'Reilly back in by the time that series rolls around and, I mean, I, I, I don't want to say we assume he'll go back to second-line center, but you can see the logic in, you know, making him the third-line center and trying to spread it out a bit. Because I do think that's, you know, that has been a bit of an issue for the Leafs uh, in playoffs past where, you're, you know, you, it, it's a little too concentrated. What I think it is is in an ideal world, you have it spread around, right? In a perfect world, you do roll you know, ideally three scoring lines and let the fourth line do what the fourth line does. It's just then you get in tight spots or knee-jerk situations that are more important. And I think your default is then, all right, cram them on the two lines. We got to make this work. We got to put the big boys together. But I think, you know, it is, it's obviously experimentation time. I mean, other than trying to fill up home ice, these last, you know, whatever, 12 games the Leafs have, you know, don't mean that that much. And, and you can certainly see the logic in, in putting the lines in in a bit of a blender, seeing what you can hit on. And, and again, I think in a perfect world, you do stretch it out over the three lines. But who knows what we're going to actually see when push comes to shove. And I do think, you know, when when it is 
Um, you know, when it matters most, when you, when you feel like you need that goal, I mean, I think you can expect to see the guys crammed back onto to two lines, but for now, why not sprinkle it out? Yeah, and, and this team is obviously being super cautious. It's why TJ Brody's not playing tonight. It's why Mark Giordano just got a rest day on Saturday against the Ottawa Senators. But they're, they're playing a goalie tonight who is admittedly not at 100% and is expecting the birth of a child, like imminently. Seems like kind of two things at odds, are they, are they not? Yeah, a little bit. I mean, no, we'll see if he disappears after the first period. I guess we'll know uh, where he went. Um, yeah, I mean, I do think, too, though, it's good to, you know, see if you can keep him in a rhythm. And, I'm, I mean, I, I don't know, but I have to assume that the team went to him. And, and if he wanted to be closer to home, then that's where he'd be. But, um, you know, Samsonov has, has been pretty good. And, you know, the Leafs have the rest of this runway to – you know, I think obviously right now, if it's game one, it's Samsonov. But, um, you know, you've still got some runway here to, to get everyone comfortable and um, and just to see more games. So, yeah, like I, I, when you've got nine defensemen who can jump in, um, absolutely, you're going to rest guys when they're a little dinged up. When, like Mark Giordano, they're the oldest skater in the NHL and, uh, you know, you, you can give him a night off to make sure he is charged. And, you know, if Brody isn't 100%, don't put him in. A little little different, I think, with the goalies, but but I certainly hear you. And, again, I guess we'll uh, we'll know if, if Samsonov disappears after uh, 40 minutes or something. We'll know what's up. <laughs> yeah, we, we certainly will. And then we'll question uh, why was he there in the first place with uh, with all of that going on um so you mentioned a little bit some of the line juggling and some of the getting guys used to new spots and we know what the team can turn back to when they need to well we're back to the 12 and 6 uh that we long expected to be back uh here and, and one of the things that i'm looking for down in the, in the bottom six is that um david Kampf, who's been kind of a, a possession driving and shot attempt killing guy for this team for two years now has had a rough couple of games hasn't been on the ice for many goals against um but hasn't had the the level of david campness that we've come to expect um are you expecting that to correct itself now that that fourth line's kind of back together and as much as they're experimenting with those top three lines um do, do you see Aston reese camp and achari being probably what they turn to down the stretch here as a fourth line yeah i think so i mean camp is is such a smart player like you said he's got a, a track record with the team. So I don't think you get too, too concerned about blips and, you know, they've seen in the relatively short time that Achari's here when he brings, it's a good mix. I think so. I think that's what you see as the fourth unit. And, you know, you're going to give a guy who's shown you, you know, pretty good results over the time, over the course of his time in Toronto. I think he's going to get, um, you know, he's going to get that opportunity to recapture his game. And, and I, I think you're, you're far more, you know, you'll see more of the experimentation with like we've been talking about on those top three, and that's probably your fourth line. Well, when do we start caring about the way this team is playing headed towards the postseason? Because I know that they've won eight of their last 12, but there's been some underwhelming performances strewn in there. Seems like they follow up the underwhelming performances if they're losses with like a very overwhelming and, and, and positive performance and a win. Um, but yeah, at, at what point here... With what, like the the last game of the regular season being April 13th, do we really start taking stock of the way this team is playing and honestly how it looks with the, the new players? Because in an overall sense, since they've swung those those massive trades before the deadline, again, the wins have been there, 
by and large, not like they've gone on a long losing streak. Like like Tampa, honestly, has, has gone on and looked as bad as Tampa did a couple of weeks ago, but don't look nearly as, as dominant as they did before the trades. At what time are we supposed to start evaluating that? Well, it's also tough, too, because obviously their biggest deadline acquisition and the guy who's yeah. going to color the team the most has been played ever since, you know, the, the first whatever he got into, three or four games, right? So there is that element to it. It's just so tough because, you know, you can, <laughs> you know, the, the coach is obviously going in there and, and still talking about things they need to work on. And I'm sure the players all, you know, recite the, the, the right mantra to themselves. But, my God, you get to this point in the season, it's been a long year. You know who your opponent's going to be. You know you're probably going to open the playoffs on a home ice. I mean, I just think there is a little bit of, human nature there where it's tough to get super geared up. I mean, it's the same thing where you can talk about, you know, staying aggressive in a game when you're up four to one, but it's tough, right? Like, I just think there's that inevitable um, human component to it when, when you're up three goals or, or when you're in game 72 of 82 and, and everything's kind of already locked in. So listen, if you're the fretful type, you can absolutely worry about giving up too many shots, um, you know, worry about signs that, things that you think are going to come into play in the playoffs, but I don't know. I, I just think one, you know, this team that, you know, obviously the, the playoffs are the minimum expectation for the, for the least at this point, you know, you get to game one and the eyes are going to get a little wider and the muscles are going to flare a bit. And, you know, that's when they're going to be super duper dialed in. I, I just, you know, realistically, yes, of course there's things you want to work on and habits you want to form and you're watching to see, how the how the the new pieces are fitting, how the goalies are doing, but um, it's a it's a tough you know post trade deadline when everyone's still super dialed in. Um, unless you are a team like the Islanders here, where you know you're scrapping it out and every point is important, I just think it is tough to bring your A game every game down the stretch. Yeah, they're only humans. I will say that it it feels like it matters more for the goalies than anybody else. And Ilya Samsonov has generally just had a a great season start to finish. And I think in an overall, Maple Leafs are happy with what they've gotten out of their goaltending. Certainly better than the the horrible save percentage they got during the regular season last year. Still ended up with 115 points. But with with the barely double-digit games remaining in the regular season... Do you think there's still time for for one of the like if it, if it is Ilya Samsonov today, the clubhouse leader, to start Game One against the Lightning? Is there enough runway for Matt Murray to usurp him and be that opening uh, uh, night starter for the playoffs? It's a good question. Um, my instinct is there still is like just because I mean, as much as you want to be careful putting too much stock in something that happened five six years ago. No, you are talking about a guy who has two cups on his resume. And if, if he puts together, you know, even say three straight real strong games and Samsonov slips a little and, you know, obviously both guys have had a little bit of injury trouble. So if you're looking at Murray and you're making the Murray case, you're thinking, well, can some of that bad stuff be chalked up so he wasn't 100%? I, I think there is, but clubhouse leader is the right way to put it. And, and you know, the, the games are, are getting low here, right? I mean, each guy's probably, you know, if you're Murray, how many more starts are you really going to get? I mean, you, you might only get six more starts. So it is dwindling, but I, I don't think it's a case where Sheldon Keith is like, well, no matter what, this is our guy. Like, you know, they're, 
Samsonov is uh, it's been a success story, but he's still in his first year with a team that's not like Keith goes back, you know, even three years with the guy or something. Um, I do think that door could still open, but you know, at this point, Samsonov's probably only got to make three or four more good starts and say, all right, well, he's at least getting the tap game one. Yeah, honestly, and you know what? Um, I know Matt Murray's not starting tonight's game, but the next game that he starts, it'll almost be a better uh, test for him. It'll be a better way to evaluate him if the team in front of him stinks, right? Like if they just lay down and play no defense, that'll, that'll be a good way to evaluate whether Matt Murray is, is figuring it out uh, in these latter stages of the regular season. Ryan, enjoy the game at a pristine arena tonight with no effigies. Thanks, man. <laughs> Thank you. There's Ryan Dixon. Sportsnet uh, senior hockey writer. Do you think there's any? Is there any truth to that? Like when you're in a nice place, maybe you 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 you're more genteel, um, and you're not as angry. Like if if this was at the old barn, if it was at the the Nassau Coliseum, that maybe Islanders fans that the blood would be a little bit hotter for John Tavares. I don't think so. No? May like I don't know. I, I don't think nice has anything to do with it. I think it's like the level of you know which fans are in the building, right? Like. There has been a well. That might be part of it. Like, in my, the, I listen. I I haven't checked the ticket prices. I imagine they're not cheaper than the old building. It might have been a different clientele that was watching the Islanders at the old arena. Plus, there is like the history of that guy in that building. Like, they've never seen John Tavares play in this new arena. Sure, I just don't know. I don't. I don't know. I've never been a like. I think arenas can be a plus for atmosphere, but I don't really think they can be a minus for atmosphere. If that makes sense. Hmm. I, I think you can have a sterile atmosphere for sure. Yeah, I just don't think if the actual things you care about, like I think quirky things or old school things or, or very specific arena specific things can make things even hotter. But I think if it's like if the barn is what it sounds like or like I think of the Milwaukee Bucks during the Raptors championship run mm-hmm. where like they're in the, the Fiserv form and it's like supposed to be this state of the art thing. It just looks like every other generic arena, just like with slightly nicer concession stands. That didn't make the games any less good. It just you focus on the game instead <laughs> of it being like, yeah, Madison Square Garden. Yeah, exactly. And and you know, hockey. I don't know has as many of those as like like Nassau baseball Coliseum obviously was, does. But Nassau Coliseum kind of was. It was yeah. like a ba- last bastion of like. A horrible place that nobody, I think, would ever, like, choose if if it didn't have the history that it had uh, and didn't have, yeah, the memories that existed within its walls. Nobody would ever want to go there. But it did have those things. Yeah, it, it always gave – I hadn't been – I've never been there, but the, the impression I always got was – don't you dare say a bad thing about how crappy that arena is. It's our crappy arena, yeah. and we crapped there. We're the ones who crapped it up, and we, <laughs> we crapped yeah. there. Um, that's that's the kind of impression that I've gotten from it. It's like like at a certain point, fan bases take pride in that, even though they want better. Everyone except the Oakland Athletics fans who just like so desperately need like a baseball stadium with working plumbing. No, it's it's true. You know what? It, it brings up. A conversation I was having with the, with the technical director Andrew Holland about a Twitter account, and I think it's MLB Cathedrals that's doing a March Madness style bracket breakdown of the worst major league ballparks that have ever existed. Right, like 
the the big O is in there. Exhibition Stadium's in there. I think Exhibition Stadium was a one seed. I never mm. went to Exhibition Stadium, so I can't weigh in on there. I was surprised to see Rogers Center as a seven seed, and it was in a tough matchup in the first round against Tropicana Field, which it obviously Ooh. lost. Like, the Trop is obviously worse than Rogers Center. And obviously, all the conversation I'm about to have about Rogers Center existed in the before times, before it, it turned into this gem, spectacular, you know, open air, you can buy a $20 ticket and just go hang out with your buddies in the outfield and take in a game and, it, a game and it's a spectacular place to, to go. But man, there's been some lean years before 2015 when yeah, there was 15,000 of your closest friends and, and the roof was closed. That that was a pretty awful place to watch a baseball game. I don't know. Did the same sentiment exist among Blue Jays fans where like only they were allowed to make fun of it? I don't know, but I'm looking at this bracket now. This guy's got to, or this woman, whoever created this, has to be Canadian because three of the one seeds are Canadian. Yeah. There's only one baseball team here. Like Jerry Park is a one seed too. Yeah, um, that's going way back. And then I think you run into at a certain point if you're just going back that far, like. Yeah, we just didn't have modern amenities then, and the stadium and the team didn't last long enough for people to be nostalgic about Jerry Park. Um, Olympic Stadium was was not good, and I will say to our conversation from last week, the Hunter Hearst Helmsley Metrodome right. in Minnesota, uh, the Triple H Dome, two seed and got through the first round. Hmm. That's surprising. Again, I've never been, but just from a television viewing perspective, there's nothing uglier than the green baggy in right field and then going back a ways like in in the way before times when they had like the basket didn't they have like a basket and and or no they had plexiglass like Mm -hmm. on the outfield at the top of the outfield wall yeah for me that would be very very high up anyways roger center is beautiful now so any uh any ill speak of of roger center will be not accepted i'm very much looking forward to getting down there for the first time next month me too we should yeah we we should do a show there I, I on, was going to say that. I on, didn't know if that was if we were allowed to say that yet or not. No, I tried to, to stop say. myself. Okay. No, no, no. We'll be down there on uh, on the home opener, um, bringing you the sights and sounds. Uh, Blue Jays open up their regular season on the road, though, in St. Louis a week from Thursday. When we come back, we will talk to the brother of Justin Verlander, Ben Verlander, who is a Fox Sports MLB analyst. He's the host of the Flippin' Bats podcast. He is in Miami right now, was yesterday as well. For the walk-off win for Team Japan, he and Lars Nootbaar had like a, a triple high-five celebration oh, at the end of that. That is, if that's not well rehearsed, <laughs> that is like, that's one of the greatest spontaneous like dap-ups of all time if that's not a rehearsed thing that they've done before, which it might be given the relationship. I guess, like what, because I was trying, what is the relationship? Because I went back and I was like, were they minor league teammates? Were they, call- they weren't. Mm. So I don't know. They just <laughs> maybe they're just friends. <laughs> yeah. People are allowed to be friends outside of uh, just work relationships. Ben. Oh, okay. All yeah, right. people who work together and work around each other can hang out and be friends. Ben. All right. Listen, you're the guy that canceled our our last att- attempt at getting together outside of work. All right. Oh yeah, the the one that uh, you and okay, we don't need to air this here. You you just <laughs> you take old JD Bunkus home to the family, and I'm sitting yeah. here with my fishing rod and my tackle box on the front door step, wondering. When, when the ride's coming and you and JD drive by waving. You're you're more than welcome to watch my children after you get like a, a good, uh, you know, warm up watching your, your nephew this weekend. <laughs> All right, when we come back, we'll talk to Ben Verlander as the fan drive time continues. Ben Annis, Blake Murphy, Sportsnet 590, The Fan. 
Very happy to be joined now by Ben Verlander, Fox Sports MLB analyst, host of the Flippin' Bats podcast, uh, one of uh, the OG fans of the World Baseball Classic. Ben, thanks for doing this. You've seen World Series games. Can you compare some of the, the scenes we've seen at this tournament to some of the, the highest stakes Major League Baseball games? Oh, absolutely. I, it's uncanny, actually. I mean, last night, that crowd, it reminded me, the, the home run, uh, Yoshida's homer down the right field line, uh, Murakami's walk-off, it reminded me a lot of, um, you know, Jordan's homer in the World Series this past year. That's one of the most recent ones that comes to mind. But, you know, some of the craziest moments that I have ever experienced on a baseball field, I am cer- certainly witnessing those right now. It's definitely up there with all-time World Series moments. And Ben, you've gotten to be pretty uh, embedded with that. You're you're around the team a little bit, um, the teams uh, rather. Um, I saw you hanging with Lars Newbar, and you've done some some sit downs with Shohei Otani. Um, what is your experience been being around that Japanese team that is obviously huge, huge, huge back in Japan, but is really having a kind of a big crossover here in North America as well? Yeah, you know the, this team is is special. I got when I went over there to Japan uh, at you know, middle of last year, August of last year, uh, I got to experience so many things. And one of those was going out to um, the manager's, basically his property, uh, Kuriyama, and got to meet him and see his, he's built this like field of dreams. He went to Iowa one day, experienced the field of dreams, fell in love with it and wanted to build his own in on his property. And he did. And it's, it's incredible. And I met him and now to see him in the U.S., uh, this this team is special and being led by that guy who has such a love for the game of baseball and such a respect and appreciation for it, uh, it. It tells me everything I need to know. And you can see it on the team. They all have such a love and respect for the game of baseball. The team is so much fun, obviously led by one of the greatest talents we've ever seen in Shohei, but guys with great character and, and great, you know, energy around them, like Lars Newtbar and, just being around that dugout and being around the team is, man, you can feel it. You can feel it every second you step around them. It really is. Uh, it's really it's really cool to experience. Yeah, I, I saw your interview you got to do with uh, Murakami after the game, after his game-winning uh, RBI double, a uh, two-RBI double. He hit 56 home runs last year in the uh, Japanese league. He's a superstar over there. Uh, we know it was a holiday in Japan, when when that game started at eight in the morning because of the vernal equinox, it's a day later, and I know you're here, you're not there. But do you have any sense of of like how big a baseball day that was across that nation with the dramatics of that event and it, and it and it being a single game elimination? Well, the the numbers that are coming out that I have seen are are astounding. To be honest with you, there, there's a chance that tonight's game is the most watched baseball game of all time. Um, it was over 90% of TVs in Japan were watching last uh, yesterday. I guess it was, I, I don't know, like you said, it's a day ahead. So in the morning for them. Um, and, and then the tweet from MLB on Fox of the walk-off from Murakami was the most retweeted tweet in Fox Sports history. Um, so the, the numbers are astounding. And it, I, it's tough to even comprehend uh, the love of baseball over there, obviously the love of baseball here. It's America's pastime. It's been it's been a blast to see the response and the buy-in uh, eventually from American fans. I think it took a little while, but the, it, you know what what we're seeing from Japan and and the numbers and the love of baseball there, uh, it's unlike anything that I've ever seen. 
Ben, I, I, you're a fan of this tournament. You were before you saw it unfold the way it has over these two weeks. I've been a fan of this tournament. There's been some great moments before. I could have never envisioned what we've seen, again, over these two weeks, and I could not be more excited for uh, the tournament three years from now. It's, it's a lot better than, than watching Grapefruit League Baseball, honestly. Um, in your wildest dreams, could you have imagined this tournament feeling the way it does headed into tonight's final? You know, as the as the guy that was kind of before the tournament started, just kind of leading a charge aimlessly with not a ton of follow at the time, this tournament's going to be the best one we've ever seen. I'm telling you, this tournament's going to be special. I'm not sure even in my wildest dreams I could have imagined where it is right now. I mean, uh, this is it's sold out. Ticket prices are skyrocketing. Uh, it's going to be insane. I don't know if even I could have imagined this in my wildest dreams for this year. I felt like this was going to be the year that really kicked off the World Baseball Classic. I know there have been four prior, but this one I just felt like the buy-in around it, Shohei obviously playing for Japan, Mike Trout playing for the United States, and so many superstars playing. It just felt different, and I, and I knew that coming in, and that's why I wanted to cover it so hard and as, as hard as I have been. And I, I, I've still been blown away by the response. And, and it all starts with the players and what they've been saying on the field. By and large, every single one that I have talked to on every single team is saying, that's the biggest home run of my career. That's the biggest hit of my career. This is the most fun I've ever had playing baseball. And that's coming from Mike Trout and Mookie Betts. It, it is insane. You mentioned biggest hit of the of someone's career, and obviously Mirakami comes into last night as the Triple Crown winner, as one of the best uh, domestic products in Japan, and he's having this really, really tough tournament. I'm a, I'm a big Japanese wrestling fan. This is like a custom-written redemption arc for a guy of you were once on top, you have to bottom all the way out to have this big redemption moment. Um, Yoshida's hit 474 in the, in this tournament. Is there anyone that you see on this Japan team that you're like, man, this guy hasn't had his big moment yet? Like we've seen Roki Sasaki, obviously Otani is Otani. Um, who are you looking for tonight that you're like, yeah, that that's the guy that could have a moment tonight that hasn't had one yet? You know who, who I'm waiting for to see if it happens, and I think that the world would go insane you know, we, we've seen the beginning of the tournament and some really cool moments of him taking the field and uh, the embrace, how much he's been embraced over in Japan. But I'm I'm still waiting for that one moment from Lars Nootbaar. Yeah. I, I know, you know, numbers-wise, this tournament uh, might not be the best for him, but, you know, he's the leadoff hitter on this team. He's taken over Japan. The pepper grinders are everywhere in the stands. <laughs> he's, he's transformed his entire world in the matter of two weeks. So, I mean, I just can't imagine if he gets a big hit tonight and has his moment on the field, he's had countless moments off of the field and countless on with some big catches. But if he has a hit tonight, uh, that, that that'll be his moment. Uh, I, I can't imagine. Yeah. I saw like there was some Japanese high school kids that were getting reprimanded for doing the pepper grinder. So yeah, we, we gotta we gotta rectify that. You got You gotta permit the we the youth. Gotta that out. That can't be happening. No, that's that's let's pepper grind away. Um. So yeah, th- this tournament has always seemingly meant more, honestly, for the Japanese players and some of those that had had not gotten exposure to to Major League Baseball. Um. And you understand that, but I. I mean, let's let's talk a little bit about the American team. And you mentioned Mike Trout, Mookie Betts, who've uh, they've done some things in Major League Baseball, but. 
fully uh, embracing and accepting this tournament. What what have you seen as far as an excitement factor and a buy-in factor from this American team, which is maybe its strongest ever in the history of this tournament? Yeah, I, I think it's been an evolution for this team. I think when it started with pool play, it was sort of a feeling of, and, and this is also from, I was sitting in Mark DeRosa's um, meeting room the other day during his press conference and hearing him talk about this. He's like, it's something that you have to experience and, and you get there over time. And I've really felt that way with Team USA. It kind of felt like in Pool C, the first couple of games, they'd realized that they were the most talented lineup arguably ever and the most talented Team USA team and that they would just kind of skate through that pool but it quickly, you quickly realize that this tournament is about more than talent on the field. You have to match the emotion of the other team and the fans and the crowd because that's what this tournament is all about. You watch these games. Uh, you watch the games in Taichung in the middle of the night, and there's 30,000 fans there literally screaming their minds off and playing these instruments. And if you, don't, uh, if you don't rise to the occasion, you'll fall behind quickly. And I think they found that out against Mexico when they lost to them in the pool play. And that crowd was 60, 70% Mexico fans, and they were loud. And I think they got punched in the face there and kind of realized, okay, um, we, need, we need to turn this up a notch. And they did. They've played better ever since that game. And, and then when they came over and played against Venezuela, that's the first time I really saw a shift with this team. And DeRosa was talking about the buy-in from guys and how now every single player on the team you feel it, you get wrapped up in the emotion of it, and they're all saying that they're having the time of their lives playing for their country. Now, this is obviously something that has the potential to, to carry over. Guys will tell other guys what that experience was like, and those guys will get hungry to play. Um, this is something that the World Baseball Classic has seemed like they want to be methodical about it, and maybe the next one's in three years, but they want to stay on roughly a four-year schedule. Could you see the players enjoying this enough to push for it to maybe be a, a biannual kind of thing so there are more opportunities, there is more, um, you know, more, more windows for guys to get to play? Hey, man, I, as selfishly, <laughs> I would love that. I would absolutely love it. You know, I, I don't think, I think you look at the World Baseball Classic and there is a degree of it mirroring the World Cup, which is the biggest, tournament and you know the biggest sports tournament there is really but at a certain point baseball's branched off and doing its own thing and it doesn't need to exactly mirror the world cup it doesn't need to be every four years i would love for it to be every other year mm -hmm. um but is that realistic i i honestly don't know that's just me being a little bit selfish here wanting that but with this buy-in here these players are all saying they're having the best times of their life and obviously the fans and the numbers involved in this and the amount of people watching and caring is astronomical. Why not capitalize on that? Why wait four years because another sport does it and another tournament does it? Have at it. Try it every two years. See how it goes. See how the players like it. And if it fails and nobody likes it, then go back to four years. But I don't imagine that being the case. No, more baseball is better, 100%. Plus, we've got innovation. I don't know what you call the Randy Rose Arena stealing the home run. Like, is that a catch flip? Like, what do we call that? Like, just like standing stoically after you steal a home run? Is that going to become a thing now in Major League Baseball? I, I don't know, but that was so cool. And in the stadium it was impossible to tell yeah. if he caught it. <laughs> right. Only reason you could is because of the fans that are in the nightclub behind him right there on that, you know, right there behind the fence. 
we couldn't tell. And all those fans were just going crazy. It was such a cool moment. And that's the stuff that I, I, I love that stuff. And I, I want more of that. And what a cool moment for Randy. who just continues to become a legend. Yeah. I'm going to just call it no selling it that, yeah, again, to go back right. to the wrestling. It's a, it's a no sell. So um, these are all the amazing moments that have happened and all the amazing experiences that, that guys are having to date tonight. We've got the final and it's the U S and Japan and two, as much of an extent as it could possibly be one V one in baseball, it's Trout against Otani. It's two, it's maybe the two best players. Any of the three of us will ever get to see play. Uh, they happen to be major league teammates. And Oh, by the way, Shohei could potentially pitch to Mike Trout in a relief situation. Who knows? Um, is there like, had we all sat down in a lab and crafted the perfect finale to a great world baseball classic? Could you even think of anything better than Shohei versus Trout with huge stakes on the line? No, I think this is this is the perfect matchup. And, you know, I, it was kind of like a far-fetched dream at the beginning of the tournament. Like, in your perfect world scenario, what do you want? And it's like, well, I mean, Team USA against Team Japan and Shohei Otani pitching to Mike Trout, and it'd just be the perfect scenario. And then you start thinking, okay, they said Shohei's not going to start another game of the tournament, so we won't get that. But at least we got an incredible tournament. And then Shohei goes – to the media and says, yeah, I'm available. I, I might pitch in relief. And I think that was a surprise to everybody, maybe even the angels. I don't know, but the guy wants to win this tournament more than anything. And I think we got a dream matchup on hand for tonight. All right. So your Twitter handle, maybe give, or your Twitter bio rather, maybe gives this away. It says Otani Shohei Daisuke. Uh, I love Shohei Otani. Uh, do you have a pick for tonight, Ben? You know, this is an interesting question, and for anybody that knows me and has followed me for a couple of years now, they know uh, how how special this matchup is for me. You know, I got to I got to go to Japan, and I got to be the one person in in the United States that has been able to sit down with Shohei Otani for an hour and do a special on him. And so that you know, Japan and baseball in Japan means so much to me. And I'm obviously American, and I've been rooting my tail off for the USA this whole tournament. So I, I, I don't know. You know, it says the betting favorite for this game is USA, and I, I struggle to disagree with that. I think it's the greatest lineup we've ever seen, uh, going against the greatest talent that we've ever seen. So in a perfect world, and this might be a cop-out answer, I hope it ends 100 to 100 in a few <laughs> days because Major League Baseball had to step in and say, hey, guys, it's opening day. Let's cut this out. <laughs> oh, that's great. Yeah, old school, what, Milwaukee All-Star game vibes? Yeah, where, it's, yeah. it's called going Broadway, again, to use the wrestling term. When you time limit draw on the main event, it's going Broadway tonight. Uh, yeah, I, yeah, I'm hoping for yeah, a close game and we get Shohei Otani. Maybe a one-run one run game, Shohei Otani trying to close it out. Uh, Mike Trout in the ninth inning would be uh, all kinds of nice. Um, maybe greedy, but you know what? Uh, why not? Ben, uh, great to talk to you. Thanks so much for doing this. Of course. Thanks for having me. There's Ben Verlander, Fox Sports MLB analyst, host of the Flippin' Bats podcast. And so he can kind of like have split allegiances. I don't have to do that. I mean, he's just like full-throated uh, rooting for Japan in tonight's game. Like, I, I, I think it matters more. I think it, it's it's amazing how much it matters to the Americans considering their late adoption, I suppose, of this tournament in full. And like it, I guess that's important. It's the most important thing as far as growing this tournament going forward. But Japan, from the get-go, was super into this thing. 
Shohei Otani is the greatest baseball player I've ever seen, and uh, I will be rooting for a close game, like I said, but one in which Shohei Otani, in that bases-loaded two-out, one-run game, ninth-inning situation, strikes out, uh, strikes out Mike Trout, and Japan is hoisting the trophy, which, honestly, I can't even picture in my head. I don't know what it looks like. What does looks, it look like? It looks like a trophy. No, I know. For sure it does. Like, there's just, like, no debating that. Yeah, I just, I don't know how to describe uh, what it looks like. It looks like the World Baseball Classic logo, like, kind of on a, you know, like a Sunday glass, that shape? No, what is a Sunday glass? A Sunday glass. So you get a Sunday in. Oh, yeah. Like okay. that, that <laughs> right. kind of cone shape that gets a little, like, kinda fancier like the toward old, the top. The old World Cup of Hockey one where, like, the logo is kind of, like, tilted forwards. Like, that is what it looks oh, like. It's yeah. just like the WBC yeah. logo no, on 100%. a percent. It's not. Which is, yeah, it's it's fine. It's No, it's kind of lame. It's whatever. Um, Honestly, we've been so glowing with our, our evaluation of this tournament. Let's let's have one criticism. The that game trophy will never stinks. take off without a better trophy. <laughs> that, that trophy stinks. Yeah, it's just, what is the Rob Manfred? Just a piece of metal? Yeah. That, honestly, just a piece of metal is what that is. But, no, there's some 16-year-old that is going to be watching tonight's game. And and we talked to June Lee about, hey, how, you know, we need the players to believe that it's part of their legacy, like part of their history, part of the reason they may or may not get into the Hall of Fame. It's like the 13-year-old, 16-year-old who's going to be in the major leagues in 10, 10 years, 10, 15 years, and is watching this tournament play out this way. And, and we don't need to do a hypothetical. Lars Nupar was that kid. There's yep. a video of him as a kid saying he wants to play baseball and he wants to represent Japan. Yep, 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 yep. So, uh, yeah, this tournament has gone uh, a long way in that regard. As to your question about rooting interest, uh huh. I do think it's not the best if the U.S. wins consecutive World Baseball Classics. I, I don't know that it's, like, I, I think it's better for... American players and American fans to be chasing like the you want it's more fun to be on the chase instead mm. of being the big bad right like how do we feel about Canada and the world juniors a lot of the time mm. like it's not it's it's fun and you appreciate the the kids and the hockey but it's not as fun to be the the heavy favorite that everyone else is trying to knock off well and also it's like we all know Honestly, the best baseball players come from the United States of America. Like, that's pretty clear. Do they, though? Because this would be three championships in five turns for Japan. I get it. But, and, and finally, Mike Trout has played in this thing. There's a lot of pitchers that did, yeah, haven't uh, participated. And, uh, yeah, I, I would like to see, you know, somebody other than Merrill Kelly starting. <laughs> that's, a, that's a tough draw for Merrill Kelly. Like it's, and it's Merrill really... Kelly's good for the uninitiated. Yeah. He's a guy that has emerged as like a 30-year-old for an Arizona Diamondbacks team and putting up like pretty good numbers across the board. Doesn't strike people out. The whole thing is very unfair to (laughs) Merrill Kelly in general of just this situation and the fact that people are going to be like, yeah, well, Merrill Kelly. It's like, oh, well, I mean... That's that's who it is. You, you can't change who's up in the in the rotation, I guess. Yeah, no, you can. Uh, speaking of the rotation, um, before we go, we, we should talk about this Hunjin Ryu quote from today. I mean, the Blue Jays didn't play a spring game, which is weird on a Tuesday. I don't know what the deal is with that. Um, they wanted to watch the game tonight. They wanted I, to be ready to go. They can do that. They can play in the afternoon. Um, but anyways, Hunjin Ryu, who is with this team, he's he's recovering from Tommy John surgery. I mean, he was pretty pointed in his goals. He said, my goal... My ideal date and time that I have set up for myself is sometime in mid-July. I'm going to try and rehab myself to get back to being able to compete at that level by that time. Hopefully our team has a playoff chance and I can play through October with the guys. That's great. That's, that's, that aligns with like the most optimistic timeline 
for Hunjin Ryu. I think most people feel like that's possibly unrealistic, but but good for him if he is setting that up as a goal. I would add, not to be a bummer to Hunjin Ryu, that like his best utility is during the regular season. And if this Blue Jays team is at its best, he's not part of a playoff rotation, by which I mean he's probably not even a playoff roster, right? Like he's the fifth starter. Like you hope he's, you're not hoping he's better than Jose Barrios in like August. You're hoping Jose Barrios is back to being Jose Barrios. Yes. I don't think there's a path to him playing. Like what would have to happen for him to get back in time and in time enough to show you to the level you need to have confidence and given where he was pre-injury like the the path to Hyunjin Ryu being on the playoff roster is just so ridiculous um hey it's better to have him back than not yeah it's always great to have other options he could be a long man out of the pen maybe expand the rotation to six for some stretch of time um Maybe he helps the, the, on his rehab stint, he helps the Bisons make a playoff push. There are lots of good reasons. And, and like, by all accounts, he's a super well-liked teammate, and you want him back around and feeling good and feeling part of the team. But, yeah, the, his path to actually contributing, unless there are a lot of issues in the bulk, uh, in the starting rotation, it's hard to see. And July also seems like a really, again, we don't know everything about it. It was only a partial tear, et cetera, but... That seems like a pretty aggressive timeline for a 35-year-old to to make it back from even a low-key Tommy John. So, and you mentioned his performance before the Tommy John because he was, you know, as a guy that it was, he was kind of in um, Yusei Kikuchi territory where it was like, oh, can you withstand this guy starting every fifth day was going so poorly. And I, I am curious to know how much of that was the result of the injury that eventually required Tommy John surgery because at his best, he's... Like, wasn't just the the opening day starter in name only during that, I know everything was weird in 2020. That guy was just amazing to watch. And on that opening day, I remember him going toe-to-toe with Garrett Cole and looking every bit as good as Garrett Cole. Now he wasn't, like, throwing gas like Garrett Cole, but when he was at his best, like, it's easy to forget because, you know, it feels like a long time ago, but this guy was a legitimate ace for this staff and led the national league in ERA before the blue Jays signed him to a four-year deal. That's probably unrealistic to expect again, a mid thirties guy coming off Tommy John surgery. I suppose like in the most optimistic scenario though, he, and Hey, Justin Verlander did it coming back from Tommy John, different pitch arsenal, right. And different way of going about it, striking people out and still throwing gas. But yeah, there is like a, a, a non-zero chance he's back to that. Yeah, non-zero is the is the right way to put it. It's a little above zero, but we don't know how much. Um, <laughs> no, I just think yeah, the the a number of things have to line up where you'd be relying on him and seeing him perform. And, and I'm just a little, I'm not a little. I'm skeptical mm. that any of that happens. Yeah. Would be thrilled to be wrong because this is a guy who it's worth noting wasn't like just blowing guys away. It was a lot of craft and mix of pitches and location, stuff like that. Like I at least trust that to come back more than a guy who's heavily velocity reliant, but also like if you're 93 turns into 92 and you're 88 off, dude, this was all turns at 87. Like that was his problem before he went down with the injury, right? He lost some miles per hour off the fastball where he went from 90, 91 to 88, 89. And it doesn't sound like that much. And you're talking about a guy who's not beating people with velocity, but when 
yeah, your 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 fastball and your your off speed stuff starts creeping ever closer together. It's it's a big deal. But wishing him the best. Hopefully, there's like a Jamie Moyer future for him. <laughs> like, how many t- didn't Jamie Moyer get? Like TJ at forty three. Yeah, I don't know. But he also pitched like 20 years longer than anyone else. I don't think that's a fair <laughs> thing to compare. It's like it's like acquiring other 38-year-old defensemen being like, well, Mark Giordano is still good at 40. Like, okay, well, I think that's probably more exception than the rule. Speaking of uh, Jamie Moyer. Yeah, I think you're right. Uh, speaking of uh, Mark Giordano, it's time for Last Call, brought to you by Bet Rivers. It's a whole new game. His team, the Toronto Maple Leafs, are on Long Island to play the Islanders and are favored on the road uh, with the core four split up along three lines. The Leafs are minus 124. Islanders, plus 107. Elsewhere, Hurricanes at MSG to play the Rangers. Rangers, minus 118. Hurricanes, plus 102. Senators in Boston to play the Bruins, where the Bruins are uh, massive favorites. Minus 305. Senators, plus 250 as they try to hold on to their postseason lives. Uh, WBC final. Here is the odds on uh, USA-Japan. United States favored, minus 139. Japan, plus 120. The total, 10 and a half. Japan to score first and win. They are the home team, despite the fact they're not actually, but they are the home team tonight. Uh, yes, paying plus 290. The United States to score first and win. Yes, plus 123. And that was Last Call, brought to you by Bet Rivers. It's a whole new game. Enjoy the baseball Everybody, it's on Sportsnet. We'll be back tomorrow. This has been the Fan Drive Time. Ben Ennis, Blake Murphy, Sportsnet 590, The Fan.